Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. 2,258 inmates were released on Wednesday, November 4th from prisons and halfway houses across New Jersey in one of the largest ever single-day reductions of any state's prison population. New Jersey prisoners within a year of completing sentences for crimes other than murder and sexual assault are eligible to be released up to eight months early. Over the coming months, an additional 1,167 prisoners will be freed to reduce the risks of coronavirus in crowded lockups where social distancing is not possible. These releases will result in a roughly 35% reduction in New Jersey's prison population since the start of the pandemic. This initiative grew out of legislation signed into law last month and after at least 52 COVID-19 related inmate deaths in New Jersey prisons. The director of the Department of Health and Human Wellness in Newark, Dr. Mark Wade, asked the state for rapid COVID-19 tests for each of the 160 people who were expected to arrive in Newark after being released from prison. The state also provided workers to administer the tests. Anyone testing positive is to be taken to a hotel to quarantine, according to Wade. Many people left directly from prison with family, and others were taken to transit stations and given vouchers to pay for a bus or train. Volunteers from an array of social justice organizations and re-entry groups organized support at major train stations across the state to greet people and offer food and a change of clothing. Rosa Jimenez was wrongly convicted of murder 17 years ago, but last year, on her 37th birthday, a judge overturned her conviction and ordered a new trial or her release within four months. She spent her 38th birthday still in prison because Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is appealing the judge's decision. In 2003, when Jimenez was preparing lunch for her one-year-old daughter and a toddler she regularly babysat for, the boy began choking on paper towels. Rushing to help him didn't work, and she took him to her neighbors for help. The toddler was resuscitated at a hospital but died months later from complications of the incident. Arrested and accused of abusing the toddler, Jimenez was charged with murder. She was convicted on the basis of faulty medical testimony. Since her conviction, pediatric airway experts have concluded that it would have been nearly impossible for Jimenez to force the child to swallow the paper towels and that the evidence suggests his death was an accident. Four judges have also stated that Jimenez is probably innocent. Even though there's so much evidence pointing to Jimenez's innocence, the state of Texas is pursuing the case to keep her in prison. California felons who had completed their prison sentences have been long denied the right to vote until they finish parole. A ballot measure restoring the right to vote for felons on parole was decisively passed by California voters on Tuesday. Proposition 17 will change the state constitution to give the right to vote to an estimated 50,000 people. The proposition carried nearly 60% of the vote after more than 11 million ballots were counted. Among the measure's opponents was Republican State Senator Jim Nielsen, 
who said restoring rights early to felons would be a slap in the face of their victims, who should have the assurance that criminals are punished fully. John Winham, who was on parole after serving 30 years behind bars for second-degree murder, insists that parole should not be further punishment. He said, quote, The punitive part of my sentence ended when I walked out of prison. Parole is to help me reintegrate into society, end quote. This includes becoming civically engaged within his community in Sacramento by voting on the issues that matter to him. The advocacy group Yes on 17 said, Research has found that felons are less likely to re-engage in criminal activity if they feel that they are valued members of the community and that their voices matter and concerns are addressed. Supporters of Prop 17 maintain that felons should be able to choose their representatives and shape the policies that affect their daily lives. Under cover of the election, there's been a national uptick in state repression in the wake of the George Floyd uprising and the movement for black lives. Anthony Smith, an organizer with the Philadelphia Coalition for Racial and Economic Legal Justice, was arrested on serious charges last week. This arrest occurred in the midst of a new uprising triggered by the police murder of Walter Wallace Jr., but was based on alleged actions during the summer. Likewise, five people have been arrested in Atlanta based on varied allegations of damage to police property and an ICE office. Check out our September 4th episode for previous coverage of ICE detainees fighting for survival during the pandemic. This week, we share a conversation between Christina and Leslie about their experiences obtaining an education while in prison. Both women reflect on the barriers to getting an education on the inside and how effective the degree was in helping them once they got out. They also talk about some of the differences in educational options between male and female facilities. Hello, all. Um, This is Christina Kovats, and today I am interviewing Leslie, who is going to discuss with us her experience with education um, during incarceration and after her incarceration. Give us a brief idea of what your education looked like prior to um, your incarceration. I attended high school until the middle of my senior semester, at which time I chose to leave and work and be out on my own, and then I returned and got my GED, and that was the extent of my education. Uh, I did actually enroll in Ivy Tech, but I didn't complete the radiology. I had transportation problems because I got a DWI, and so I uh, didn't complete that. Did you apply for any financial aid when you went? Yes, I, I got federal funding to attend the radiology, and then... I had a, a small little book fee, which at the time I didn't realize, but I, I had to pay that back. How long was it from that time frame till your incarceration? My radiology, I think, was in 1992 that I, I, I went to that, 92 or 93, and then I was incarcerated in 95. It was three years before I actually reached the prison. And at that time, everybody had encouraged me all along the way to to pursue college. They said that was an option and that when I would get to uh, IWP, that would be my my first priority. And I got there in uh, late 97. So in 98, I applied to FAFSA in March, and I was able to start classes that fall. In the meantime, uh, as far as other educational things, 
I didn't really pursue too many uh, formal or like vocational or, or specific educational things, just programming until it was time for me to start school. You said that you had applied for FAFSA. Can you talk a little bit about that, FAFSA, while you were incarcerated? Who was the school? How did you go about that process? What did you receive? So on and so forth. And uh, just like anyone, we we were uh, registered for FAFSA in March, and um, we had to list all of the information, and they checked it just as if we were not incarcerated. And I think there were restrictions even at that time. This would be in 98. For people with certain types of cases, uh, I was not restricted in my case. So what it was is you get um, enough money to go over a 10-year course uh, for like eight semesters or a four-year, the equivalent of four years of college. But you would have to take six courses each semester or, or some people maybe more in order to get your associate's and your bachelor's degree in that time frame and that amount of semesters. So I think that you touched on two very interesting points for me. One, six courses, that's that's a lot to take on in just a semester. But also you said that when applying for FAFSA, some people were not able to get that because of their crime? Yeah, and I cannot remember for a fact because each year we registered. And I remember specifically that certain people um, had resentments towards other people because, for instance, if you had a violent case such as murder, you were not restricted. But if you had a drug felony, you had certain restrictions. And of course, there were those people that had outstanding debts for school or different things of this nature that were also restricted. I didn't uh, lie on anything or, you know, falsify anything. But fortunately, I was not restricted in any way. And what was the school that you were going to during your incarceration? Ball State. They had two options. They had a Martin University course curriculum, and they also had a Ball State curriculum, and I chose to go to Ball State. When I first started, there were so few students and so few professors that we were um, taking four courses. And at a later time in my personal experience, I was forced to take six and more classes to make up for having the short schedule in the beginning so that I could finish and complete within my time frame. And so what was your the degree that you were pursuing at this time? Well, that's kind of interesting. We were kind of in a general studies curriculum because, like I said, it was basically a, a course curriculum created out of the willing professors from Ball State that would come and, and give us our class time. And so um, in the very beginning, the group of students that I began school with followed English and literature but as they graduated, and many of them, I think there were six other people that got a Bachelor of Science in English, and I had taken many of the same courses, but I wasn't able to complete for another couple of years, and a new group had came in, and the, and the program expanded, and it was kind of steered towards uh, computers for a second, and then it went to history. So I ended up with a uh, minor in psychology and anthropology, also a minor in literature, but I have, like, extra credits, so it's something like a pre-professional literature option. But I don't have a Bachelor of Science. It is in general study. How long were you in, in school? Did you get your uh, degree, and how long did it take you to get that? 
Well, I got my associates, I guess it was kind of late, because I got my associates in 2001 and my bachelor's in 2002, because I kind of had to, as I described before, uh, bolster up my class time to finish in time, so that's how that happened. And what other education did you get or pursue during your incarceration? In the very beginning, I, uh, I did take some CAD courses. I took building trades, horticulture. After I graduated, I took some theology, four years of theology. And um, at the end, right before I got out, um, I was able to take um, welding. And that ended up putting me in a position to have uh, gainful employment upon release. And um, the bachelor's degree, uh, not so much. I think I am qualified to probably teach but by the nature of my felony convictions, I'm not permitted to do that in any way, shape, or form, not online, not adult education, nothing. You meet all the qualifications and requirements to be an educator, correct? So far as I know, when I was at uh, the the, um, Madison facility, the gal that was there trying to help she said that I, I could be an adult educator, at least GED teacher, and um, she went through it and checked, and she said it's a dead-end course for me, so I didn't really pursue all the qualifications and eligibility beyond the one that was that told me that I wasn't going to be able to follow through with it, period, dot. So your degrees have not been beneficial for you in obtaining a job um, once you were released, but have your vocationals been beneficial? My degrees were beneficial. Uh, do not get me wrong as far as to have some goal to shoot for the learning. It was very beneficial to me to be able to accomplish that. And the idea that I would be set up in a, in a position to where I could, you know, sustain myself when I got out, the, the idea of that was kind of nice to have, although it was a little disenchanting when I found out I couldn't really apply those degrees immediately upon release, and I was within a year of release, and I got the welding certification, and that actually was the most practical thing that it ended up being of all the things that I did because it, it put me in a position to be immediately employed at a, at a rate of pay that was able to sustain me as an individual, just you know, pay my rent, all my bills. Originally, you were at the Indiana Women's Prison, and so you were transferred to Madison Correctional Facility. Is that correct? Right. When you okay. when you get down and your security level goes down, then you're eligible to go to minimum security prison. Well, I was under the impression I would be going out on crews that would work around and, and get a little bit of a transition. I had done a, several years, and I hadn't been out and exposed to society at all. And uh, it turns out that my uh, restriction didn't afford me the opportunity to go out on work cruise or do anything like that until I got to work release. And the only work release I was eligible to go to was in Madison because adult women that have certain level of crimes and restrictions as far as security can only go to that facility. So your work release is going to have to permit you to work only in this area. So, and your employment is... Um, you use that welding certificate that you had got for your for your current employment? Right. That's how okay. I got in the door. I was hired as a welder, 
and I worked for eight months as a welder, and then I applied within the same place where you can apply for different jobs. They like to hire from within, and I actually was HR for about another eight months, and then recently I went back to second shift production just basically because it's more money, and, and I, I do make good money. And don't get me wrong, they did like the fact that I had a bachelor's degree, but uh, as far as being able to apply it to any of the internal job postings that they have, it isn't in a technical field. So it's good to have the degree, but it's not a technical degree that would pretty much give me any advantage over somebody that had any kind of training in that specific area. Right. So they like that you've had, you know, you've pursued the education, but it's just not really applicable to the work that they're looking for in those positions. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to be able to type a nice memo and spell things right. I've got a lot of English and, and, to, be, and to be, you know, a good communicator mm-hmm. at the job. But they want people that have more vocational and technical training. You know, they give the time cuts. You get a, a year off for an associate's and two years off for your bachelor's. There's an incentive to do the educational thing. But um, most of the people that I see or that I know and stay in touch with that are employed consistent with the kind of education they receive in prison are beauticians. At men's prison, adult men, they get training that's more or less uh, they work on cars, they build houses, and I actually was able to work with one of the guys. And I guess they build a house every year and they, they learn how to do it from the floor up. And that would be a great way to learn how to build a house is to actually on-site, inside the prison, do that. Well, they don't do that for the women, but we were able to uh, utilize one of the guys that does that for the men's prison when we did our uh, restoration of the chapel. And I learned a lot doing that. It was like a little bit over a year long, and we did, you know, after they got the asbestos out of there, they sent us in there, and we did every bit of it, just the women that were there, under the supervision of the one guy. And I thought, man, that would be really good if women would have a lot of the same opportunities. They get to learn auto mechanics, and they can go mm-hmm. out on the and into the field. There's no real discrimination against the man that's been in prison that actually has learned that vocation because those vocations don't discriminate. And it's, it's a way for them to earn pretty good dollars. And I'm not saying women don't get hired in those fields. I'm just saying that women's facilities don't really focus on those types of skills and vocational opportunities for the, for the adult women to have and go out and use as far as workforce one and all those things that, that are applied. It's more cosmetology and small money ideas, I guess. I, I do totally agree with you on that. And I had actually done part of the chapel with you. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that was a great experience. And it, it does teach, you do learn so much, but also I think that it's a very important element for women, um, because, you know, it, it gives them another level of independence. And I, it lets them know that they can do these things. And, you know, that they don't necessarily need somebody in their life for that reason. There are many people, as you know, being someone familiar with the prison system that aren't academically inclined. Uh And so the vocational option is the way for them to be able to have an alternative to a criminal lifestyle or having to depend on somebody, which many of the women that I've I've met in prison, they were 
side stream cases. Their dude was dealing drugs in their house, taking care of them and their kids. They can't even go to college or get grant money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and then if they're not academically inclined, then they're going to be in another category. And there's always the factor of how much time you have and if it's you know going to work out for the time frame. I still I feel very grateful that they actually gave me the opportunity to get that vocational training, and that's why I, I wish for more people that they could get more appropriate training and that somebody would look ahead as far as being able to place them in their location at a, at a real tangible job that's not going to restrict them in the area that their education is in or their vocation is in. Right, and I'm, I'm with you, Leslie. I feel like... Um, the, the education is great, but it has to be able to be used, right? And so the the degree that you had gotten, is there, have you explored if there's a possibility for a job in any field where that would be beneficial? Or was it just that you, you really wanted to be a teacher of some sort and you knew that you weren't able to do that? Well, it, it started out as far as my pursuit to, to see what field would be consistent with my education, there are other ways to apply a Bachelor of General Studies, but nothing specific as far as something that I had considered. I thought, I'll just see what's going on. But remember, I told you that before I even left IWP, two years before I ever got out, I made up my mind that I wanted to do the welding. I knew that I could probably pursue it, achieve it, and I I probably wouldn't be restricted or it wouldn't be an issue as far as the people I work with or the people that hire me or the job that I do or the clients that I would interact with. Uh, there's none of that kind of worry for me. And after the long stint of incarceration, I got to tell you, I just didn't want to have a lot of overwhelming extra social pressure. So it worked out for me to do it. It was, it was somewhat of a choice for me just getting out with the pressures of just learning how to use a cell phone, relearning how to drive, being independent and in a different, less structured world and things of this nature, getting more familiar with my family. These were the things that I wanted to get under my belt before I looked on to something, you know, more challenging, I guess you could say, for a person in my circumstance. Is there anything else that you feel is important for people to know? I think kind of how we got on our conversation that led to this interview was I had watched the Ken Burns kind of little docu-series about college behind bars. And they showed a a group of people that were, you know, basically going to college in prison. And I looked at that and I compared it to my own experience. And I think even, even with that, you see people that, have been given an opportunity to go to college, and that's their primary focus. And so when people look at that, they say, well, yeah, if I was in prison for breaking the law and somebody gives me federal money, you know, the taxpayers' dollars to go to school, and that's all I had to do, I would be able to complete it, but they have an advantage. Well, we did get federal funding, and we did complete, but um, at the same time, we weren't, we, we were still working. 40-hour-a-week job. I was a cook in the kitchen. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I worked until noon every day, and then I went to school at night, and I had to use my own time to do my homework and everything, just like a person in the world would have to do. And 
I think I would hope that people would want me to use my time in there since they're paying for me to be in prison to do things to better myself. But I also think that they want their money to be wisely spent to where people are going to actually get out, not come back and carry their own weight and not be criminals and not be on welfare or get some kind of check because they can't cope with life or something to this effect. And uh, one one attitude or one stereotype about that is my, I'm out here working and I'm free and I'm doing all the right things and my kids don't have the advantage to be able to go to school. And I think that's wrong. And I, I'm not going to say that no one should be able to go to school if their kids can't go to school, but there's a problem if their kids can't go to school like that. I'm going to say the same thing for people on the outside as people on the inside. If there is an interest, a talent, and an opportunity for a skill set that somebody has, and they can go and they want to get vocational training and then be employed gainfully, I think everybody should have that opportunity, you know. And so instead of saying prisoners shouldn't get federal money to do any kind of training or schooling, it should be more along the lines of everybody should have the opportunity, if they're willing and able-bodied, to pursue a, you know, honest living and do something that they're good at and be, and not have to worry. So there's a, not necessarily a problem with the people in prison having the opportunity. It's those that don't have the opportunity outside of there that are looking at it as don't let them go if I can't send my kid, you know. And so I'd, I'd like somebody to address if, if somebody's a hardworking person and they have kids and maybe their kids don't want to do a degree. Maybe that's not economical, but at least there should be a way for them to pursue the same things that I think everybody should have inside or outside of prison, which is the training, the credentials, and the placement so that they can take care of themselves. A lot of people don't want to hear that education helps reduce recidivism rate and that they also don't want to hear that a lot of people incarcerated come from a place where they didn't have that opportunity before. But the reality of it is the people that are using your tax dollars to be incarcerated are going to become people that are going to be paying the same tax dollars along with you and not taking your tax money, but contributing to the taxes. So do you want them to be out on welfare right. or um, some kind of other funding that's still a part of the system that's still not a contributor? Right. Or do you want them to be a contributor and, and be on your team and help promote these new ideas, which are simple, which gives everybody opportunity if they're willing to work and they want to work, that they have that opportunity to get gainful employment. If we could just get past those stereotypes and those narrow one, one kind of lane vision things and work together, I think that we can make it better for everybody so that we can all have a little money in our pocket and not feel bad about somebody going to school. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Well, again, thank you so much for all of your time, Leslie. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you have great insight. You have so much knowledge and, and wisdom to offer in this area. And so thank you so very much. These interviews with formerly incarcerated people on the barriers they face in obtaining an education was made possible by a grant from the Lumina Foundation. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.